Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. We have so many exciting things coming up for you in 2022, starting with our webinar from Concept to Creation, the weekend of February 5th and 6th. This is an opportunity for educators to create a project from any concept you want to explore. We'll walk through the Rebel Educator concept-driven project creation process so that you gain an understanding of how to weave subjects together, create an engaging entry event, and build an authentic experience that your students will love. Coming this summer, we will repeat this process in a more in-depth three-day workshop. Look for upcoming dates sharing soon. If you're local to the San Francisco Bay Area, UP Academy, our progressive elementary school, is now enrolling for fall of 2022. And we'd love to have you watch for the Rebel Educator book launch coming in March of 2022. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator podcast. Welcome everyone. I am here today with Chelsea Robertson. Chelsea is founder of Leyland Growth, where she empowers school and education-related business leaders to evaluate processes, set strategic goals, and propel their mission forward. She works to revamp schools from the inside out, partners with innovative schools and education-related businesses to better reach their audience through clarifying their message. Welcome, Chelsea. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. This is going to be a great conversation. I'm excited. Anything with rebel or education in the name, I'm always 100% in. We got them both. We got them both. (laughs) It's so exciting. You have worked as a classroom educator in the States and internationally and loved it all the way through to your first taste of school leadership. So can you tell us a little bit about the types of schools you were able to work in and lead and how that experience shaped your current business? Yeah. So most of the schools that I've worked in have been early education centers. The first one that I worked in started out more traditional as far as curriculum and model and those types of things. I taught there for a while and then it ended up assistant directing, co-directing, and then directing (laughs) there in the 10 years that I was there. And we kind of shook it up some and went more Reggio Emilia style, play-based, child-led, all those types of things um, and trained our staff and kind of went that direction and stayed there for a long time. And then switched to another school that they actually brought me in to shake up everything that was going. They were also very traditional using worksheets and two-year-old classrooms and, you know, those types of things. So we shook all that up too and kind of went more the play-based child-led area. So that's kind of in the States with schools that I've actually worked at as a teacher or a director. Those are the models. When I worked in Honduras, I worked at a private Christian school. And so that was very traditional as well. I worked in the kindergarten classroom. And then most of the schools that I work with are around me so I can go on site or hang out there for a little bit. But they're pretty alternative model schools, which are my favorite. The less traditional, the more excited I am about it. What made you originally shift? Like what got your curiosity up about Reggio Emilia or about more student-led learning? Like how did that happen to move from a traditional model into a more alternative type setup? 
Well, I think it was just kind of the curiosity of it all, because I'd only ever really seen the traditional model. And then as I started seeing different types of learners not be, quote unquote, successful inside of that, or teachers with different strategies kind of trying new things, it was like, ooh, well, that's kind of fun. What if we tried that? And what if we tried that? And it just snowballed from there. And then my own daughters are both learning different. One of them is very high academic. So she goes one direction. And then I have a daughter who has dyslexia and ADHD. So she learns a different way. And so having both of those humans in my life, it was all just kind of a bunch of experimenting that then caught fire and became very interesting. And I just followed that all the way. So how did you originally get your directors to buy into trying some new things and being more experimental with the things you were trying in the classroom? In the first role that I was in and kind of doing that, it was modeling. I was kind of piling it in my classroom at the time and then just engaging in that conversation. And isn't that cool? And what did you see? And do you think that would be fun if you tried it over here? And just little by little, just modeling it and then, you know, secret spy implementation into other spaces. And then it just became part of who I am, I think. And it just was part of my conversation and part of the energy that I brought was, what if we tried this? And what if we tried that? What if we did this? Overall, it was always a very inclusive conversation with whoever I was working with. Not like we have to do these four things. It is always, what do you think about trying these four things or those two things? Or what do you think about this? And getting their mind started on the imagination side and then building from there. I'm always pleasantly surprised at when you allow other people that you're working with to start asking questions and trying new things that they kind of snowball themselves. And then we're all snowballing together (laughs) and getting to new fun places. It's funny the places curiosity can take you. Oh, yeah. We know that in education. If it's that for students, then it's definitely that way for educators as well. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of educators who really want that for students. They want them to be curious, but they're not finding that in their own life and in their own work, or they're not given that leeway to really ask those questions and be curious. Yeah, because it's kind of a drip down effect, right? If I'm modeling that for the educators that I'm working with, and then they get to experience it, and then organically, they're modeling that for the learners, and then the learners are getting to experience it. It's kind of a fun tier and then it all we all get the ripple effect of it because then the educators are excited to see the learners using curiosity and I'm excited to see the educators using curiosity and then we're all excited. Absolutely. And we all need to be excited. Yes. My brain is still a little stuck on something you said at the beginning about two-year-olds and worksheets. Because I can't even fathom what a worksheet would look like for a two-year-old. And so I'm having a really hard time moving that forward from that (laughs) in my brain. Can you tell me what worksheets two-year-olds were working on? So the the curriculum that was being used at this point was a lot of tracing the letter A and coloring the color blue and, you know, drawing lines from one dot to the other. There was this whole theory around building fine motor skills. And the only way that you could really do that well was inside of handwriting, which we know that fine motor skills are absolutely not defined by handwriting. You can build those in all kinds of different ways. It was they had to sit at the table, hold their pencil or their crayon or whatever, and then trace the letter A, trace the letter A, trace the letter A. And you're having to force them to do that because they're not interested in that. They'd like to see all the different color. They have no spatial awareness. Like it just doesn't make sense. I also, in the same school, 
when I was touring the school to take the director position, walked past a classroom who had a two-year-old sitting in the corner for timeout. And I'm like, oh boy, what are we doing? Why are we doing that? Prove to me that that's effective and we can have a different conversation. They needed you. Yeah, it was a 30-year-old school. So it would like walking into the past. They did what worked or what was validated 30 years ago and just kind of rolled with it. So no one could really explain why. When I would say, why do you use that type of discipline structure? Or why do you use that type of curriculum structure? The answer was always, well, that's just what we've always done. Or that's just what we do. And that's what they tell me. No one could say, because that's how the child learns best, or because that fits inside of our philosophy, or our mission this way. So it was just kind of like handed down, handed down, handed down until no one really knew why they did the things they do, which is so very common in schools, I find, um, that no one can really say, this is why we do it. It's more just, this is just what we do. I don't, I don't know why. They just told me that's what we do. Yeah. So I have two comments about that. First, parents, if you are listening and your two-year-old is doing this, please move them to another preschool. <laughs> yes, please. please. I support that. Let them play. Let them move. Let them manipulate Play-Doh and Legos <laughs> and blocks and playground equipment and sand and shaving cream and snow and anything mm -hmm. else. But please let them play. Yes. And the second part of that is you said something that I talk about a lot. And it's something, you know, that's known to be the kiss of death in the business world is when you ask someone, you know, why do you do it this way? And they say it's the way it's always been done. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, it's really pervasive still in education with all of the research, with all of the changes, with everything that's come to light in the last two years. Yeah. It's still so frequently, well, we've just always done it this way. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's definitely time to look at all of the research that's out there and how can we bring that into our schools and how can we create a better space for our students? Yeah, it's not for shortage of research, it's for shortage of implementation. Yeah, which is part of what you do, right? So going back to you, you have continually sought out new challenges and you started a company in education during a pandemic. That's a bold move. Can you share a little about your educational journey that has led you into entrepreneurship? Yeah. So I was at the school for 10 years, I was talking about, and then I kind of got like recruited, pulled into this other school that they needed, you know, to kind of burn down from the inside out. Their statement to me when hiring me was, everybody's going to hate you. And I was like, great, let's do it. I'm in. And so there were 240 students and about 75 staff members and then, you know, however many parents are associated with that. So I got to go in there and, and do that. And that was great. At the same time, I was working with some local private schools and ABA therapy centers and things like that to just ask questions about processes. Or at the time I was working with them on website development, social media, just asking bigger questions about what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And then how are you letting other people know this is what you do and why you do it? That those types of things. And then they lead to working on internal processes. Again, it's a snowball. You ask one question, you end up 200 questions later and you're solving problems you didn't know you had. So I joke that my whole role and everything I do is essentially to ask clarifying questions, <laughs> which is funnily enough what I did as an educator as well. So, But I was doing some of that on the side and then directing. And then the school that I was directing did not reopen after we finished that school year. So in August 2020, I found myself schoolless for the first time in my career. And so I just kind of dove into some of the clients that I already had that I was working with, the schools and ABA therapy centers, and then just 
jumped in and started seeing what else I could find or do or how else I could help other businesses and schools. And I joked with my boss before everything shut down that I should probably update my LinkedIn profile before I lose my job. And then I did lose my job. And then LinkedIn became a big part of you know my business and what I do. But yeah, it was kind of a, wouldn't that be interesting, turned into this is what we're doing. Okay, ready, set, go kind of cliff jump there. Nothing like a good cliff jump or someone to push you over the edge to make you take the plunge. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, definitely. It was a little bit of both. Yeah, it sounds like you already had a few toes over. I did. Yeah, I get bored easily. So my toes end up being in lots of different places at one time. Having asked a lot of different clarifying questions and getting a lot of different reasons for why schools do things or why educators do things or you know the way things are done and looking at so many school models, if you were going to create your own dream school and build it from the bottom up, what would that look like? So I actually think that I found the closest thing that I'm going to find to a school that I would build from the ground up. During the pandemic, my daughter's They homeschooled with me. One of them was doing virtual and the other one was just like, forget this. I'll just do my own homeschool, my oldest one. And I said, okay. And we ended up finding a online student-led school called Galileo. And school might be a strong word. It was kind of like a learning environment. I don't know what, what exactly they call it, but the concept of it was the child comes in and builds their schedule. They can form clubs. They can do workshops and kind of pick and choose. And I mean, it was the epitome of student-led. So they had some things that they went to that had a facilitator. They didn't have teachers. They had facilitators. You can imagine the difference between a facilitator and a teacher when one would be standing up front kind of spewing information and the other one is facilitating the sharing of information and asking clarifying questions (laughs) of the students in the classroom or in the space. And it was an international Thing. So my daughter got to sit in classes with kids from Turkey, kids from Spain, kids from Australia, kids from the States. And that was a really cool thing because I think as opposed to a brick and mortar school where you're only really getting other people in your space, you know, within a 20 mile radius, if that maybe it's a private school in this space, you have opportunity to, to learn from and speak with people all over the world, which I love that because it just organically increases your conversation and kind of the depth of things that you're talking about and your curiosity. So at the heart of it, I think it was truly student-centered, student-led, from your schedule to your classrooms, to your clubs, to who was leading the provocations and, and those types of things. Also that it was international, so you could bring in peoples and ideas and concepts from wherever. So we live in the Bible Belt, And so the way that conversation is had in schools here and in just places where we are is very similar to each other. But to sit in an international school that's not in the Bible Belt, you just get all these differing perceptions and opinions. And that's what I want for my girls specifically and then for learners in general. So I think those were the concepts that I really valued. And if I was to build something on my own, it would have those as the biggest guiding pieces of it. Was she still doing virtual Galileo school? No, she decided that she wanted to try public school here by us because she's going into, she went into middle school. And just the other day, she was like, mom, I'm ready to go back to Galileo. And I was like, no, kid, we decided it. This was, you know, you have to finish at least the year and then we can reevaluate it. 
pros and cons, right? She gets to be in a space with physical humans, but then at the same time, she has very little say over her schedule in her classrooms. So there's give and take on both sides. So if you designed your dream school, would it be virtual or would you look for a space and a place somewhere on the globe where you could have students from all over building their own classes and their own experience and their own clubs and really creating that global community? Yeah, I mean, I think it would have to be a a hybrid of sorts, you know, be able to have the opportunity to be in person and with other people and that interaction, but then also to be able to learn and talk with people all over the world who couldn't be in one space. So something like that. And then the school that I was referring to, Galileo, they did before pre-pandemic, they would do like meetups during the year where they would say, okay, we're all going to meet up in Spain or something, right? And do a trip. And so, you know, something like that. But I don't know. That's an interesting question because on one hand, you would want the kids to be able to interact with each other face to face. On the other hand, I think it's very important to be able to engage with people from all kinds of different beliefs and backgrounds. And how do you get that all in one space? So I don't know. I don't have a, a good answer for that. Yeah, it made me curious. Definitely. Looking at that, too, and thinking about, you know, I I live in the Bay Area, and so we do have such great diversity here and different perspectives. And, you know, there's no dominant heritage or class or culture within our school, which is fun and interesting and does allow our students to get a different perspective. But we're all still in America. We're all still living the same kind of the same experience, even with how different Mm -hmm. it may be for each of us. So yeah, how do you build that really, truly global community where students really are in charge, but still allow them to be in person, like with other humans? Yeah, it's a hard middle ground there to find something like that. Yeah, definitely. So one of the questions I always love to ask, since I do run an elementary school, and you have worked so long in early child and elementary education. Can you share a story or is there anything that you remember from your own elementary school years? So I remember that I went to a lot of different elementary schools. I want to say like six, maybe something like that. There was quite a few, maybe five because of things that were going on in my in my life. But every time I got to go to a new school, I would get a new backpack. And that was always very exciting (laughs) for me because, you know, what is school without a backpack? I don't even know. And this one year I got like a, it was over the shoulder bag and it had like a giant Tweety Bird face. And I was a a small human. So I was probably going into like second or third grade, but it looked like I was going into, you know, pre-K kindergarten. And I had this giant Tweety bag that was just the size of me. And, you know, with two things in it because I'm in first or second grade. And I just remember having to carry this bag around me. I mean, like drag it up on the bus, but how dedicated I was to this bag. (laughs) And it was a part of me and it had to go. And it just took so much effort to carry with me and to do. But I would always use that story when I was talking with my staff, especially in early education, where a child would bring something to school that we didn't want there that caused issues or whatever. Or the staff would say, they don't need it, right? Like they don't need that blanket or that, this or that toy or it's causing a distraction. But I would always kind of ask questions about what value do you feel like that provides for them? What are they getting from that object that they're not getting from the classroom? Or what are they bringing with them in that object? And for me, with my Tweety bag, I knew that, you know, it was a new school and it was scary 
but I had this bag with me that my mom had given me and I got to choose it. And it was like the sense of almost empowerment that I got to choose this bag and I'm going to carry this bag. Darn it. If I can carry this bag, I can do a new school. Um, And so it meant something to me. And so I always encouraged educators that I worked with, like before you take something from a student that would seem obvious, well, we're not going to do Power Ranger in this classroom. Give me the Power Ranger. Let's put it back in your cubby or whatever. To kind of ask, what does this mean to you? Or is this special to you in some way? Or where did you get this? Or, you know, understanding, because then maybe you do end up having them put the Power Ranger back in their cubby. But if you're finding that their Power Ranger reminds them of their dad who's traveling, then maybe you can find another way to kind of fill that gap that the Power Ranger was filling. So yeah, that's something I remember from elementary school that I now get to use as an example in training with educators that I talk with that giant Tweety bag. So side note, I was Tweety Bird at about that age for Halloween. My mom made me a giant costume with a huge head. Oh my gosh. It was amazing. You bring up a really good point, especially as we're talking more about social emotional learning and the trauma that our students have been through. Yeah. We always have students with trauma and we almost never have the full story of what's happening at home or what they've been through or what's happened in the past. But especially over these last 18 months, we have so many students coming in with so many different challenges, with traumas, with mental health challenges, and really looking at building that social emotional base for them. Mm -hmm. That you bring up a really good point of how are we expecting our students to show up in a classroom when we're stripping them of the things that make them feel comfortable in so many ways? Yeah, there's always so many more layers to what we're seeing, right? I mean, behavior is a form of communication. So is what they're bringing from home, like they're communicating with us with everything that they do. And I do training in centers about how to be a trauma-informed environment, how to create this type of psychological safety. And so these types of questions often are not anything that an educator may have been presented with before. Because we just say they have a Power Ranger. Power Rangers just are distracting. So let's put it in our cubby. But to really think through what is it that they're gaining from this object or this behavior, or this practice that we need to be aware of and then help them with is a whole different mindset, which can bring out some really interesting conversations with the learner, with the child, and then create a different level of relationship between the educator and the learner. And I just love it because, again, we're just asking clarifying questions (laughs) and seeing what the child can share with us, which is always fascinating to me. Yeah. What does it look like to be curious? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Clarifying questions. Yep. And want to learn and want to know and want to help and want to support. Definitely. I think the other piece that's interesting about that story, and I've talked to a couple other people recently, too, who have shared stories, not about a teacher or a field trip or a lesson or a thing in school, but about a thing that they brought with them or just something that they remember doing outside of school is, you know, as educators, what are we doing to make our lessons memorable? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a big answer to that um, or another question to go along with that question is, are our lessons or our topics inquiry based Like as in we're getting them from the interest of the child and then building something around it, or are we assuming the interest of the child and then building something around it? And often it's the second one. We're assuming their interest and then building something instead of really digging into what is your interest and then building something around it. So if we're, you know, starting from there and we're looking at student-led and building something around student interests, then how do you support educators in helping them learn what we as educators believe they're supposed to be learning their standards, 
along with their interests of, you know, what they want to learn. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is relatively easier in early education because they tend to be very vocal about their interests, right? They're sharing with us, like, I really like this or I don't like that or whatever. And then it can also be a little bit easier. For example, if you're sitting in morning meeting in early education or in an early elementary grade, we did this all the time. We're talking about cars and math or whatever, and a child will see a butterfly out the window. So what do we do? We walk away and we go and follow that. And as an educator, it was fairly easy for me as a practice to take the concept that I was introducing inside of morning meeting by talking about cars and shifting it to whatever their inquiry was. Now we were talking about butterflies, but we still wanted to discuss the concept of two plus two. Well, can we do that in this container rather than this container? And the answer is almost always yes. So I think it's about following the kid's interest, but still keeping that whatever concept you're trying to introduce, because concepts can be relatively fluid, especially the basic ones like the alphabet, the numbers, you know, adding those types of things. You can do that inside of what you structure as an interest, cars, or what the child is showing you as an interest, butterflies. Um, And just taking that concept and being fluid or flexible enough to kind of pour that into a different container, but the same conversation, really, with different illustrations. Yeah, that's a skill set that educators aren't really taught in school. (laughs) Yes, it's absolutely true. And I know I recognize that a lot when I'm working with teachers or doing staff development at schools or conferences or whatever. When I'm talking about that, a lot of these things have never been presented. It's follow the lesson plan. We do it like this. But it's when you present that, well, how can you take this and pour it into a new container? It's like, oh, huh. That's why I love clarifying questions because then they get to try and answer that in their next practice. And I love hearing teachers and directors and whoever come back and say, I did. I was totally able to take two plus two and pour it into the butterfly container, into the car container, did the exact same thing. Um, Because it, it is relatively simple. It's more just having the confidence to try it. And sometimes it doesn't work. But then, you know, trying something else. I think being empowered as an educator to say, hey, let's try it. But if it doesn't work, we'll try something different. Um, And then having the support is is a huge part of that, too. Yeah. And that's really important to model for our students as well. You know, if they're trying to strive to this ideal of perfectionism where everything works perfectly all the time, the first time, that's really hard if you're in a science class and doing experiments or if you're being asked to think of something that's outside the realm of what you've learned before. But if you're watching your teacher do that all the time and trying something and sometimes it works and sometimes it works less well and sometimes it doesn't work at all. Yeah. And then you have that experience of, okay, so we go forward and figure out what does work because we still need to learn this concept. Let's figure out how to do it a different way. Mm -hmm. Then you're modeling that growth mindset as well as that curiosity and following student inquiry. And now you have kids who, when they come home and mom asks, what'd you do today? Instead of saying nothing because they weren't interested in cars and so they've already forgotten it, they get to say, Mm -hmm. I learned about butterflies and then show them the math homework. Mom's like, huh, butterflies and two plus two. Cool. Yeah, they have have four (laughs) wings. Look at that. (laughs) Right. You know, it's funny how it all kind of comes together. And I love like what you said there about growth mindset, because in those types of spaces where you're willing to shift and do all those types of things, it's so cool to see how it just naturally creates a growth mindset space, a psychologically safe space, a trauma-informed space. Like when you're taking these steps, you're getting all of these bonuses 
on top of it, which is just beautiful to see. Yes. Thank you so much, Chelsea. How can people get in touch with you? I am mostly on LinkedIn is my favorite place to hang out. So you can find me there. I'm also on TikTok and Instagram and then on my website. But yeah, I'm around. LaylandGrowth.com is my website, but LinkedIn's probably the best way to find me if you hang out there. It's a cool place to be, I promise. (laughs) I hang out there. I agree with you. So thank you. And so you can find Chelsea on LinkedIn, find her at her website, ask more about clarifying questions, curiosity, trauma-informed spaces, and all of the other things. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was a good conversation. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators.